Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Now, at this point, my co-host was about to jump in and introduce himself, and I cut him off because actually... Scott Ray is going to be on the hot seat today because of our topic. So I'm glad you're here. I hope, I hope you're a little bit nervous because I'm going to ask the toughest questions and we'll see how you think on the spot. Actually, that's not true. Yeah, so we, give, give me your best shot. Here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are going to talk about your book, Moral Choices, which just came out in a fourth edition. Congratulations, Thank by you. the way. First edition came out in 1995. I was a student at Biola during this time. And l- let me ask you this kind of as we start. Why did you first write this book? Which I would consider, by the way, when people ask me, give me one kind of text that deals with moral issues of the day, thoughtfully, biblically, philosophically. I consistently point to moral choices. But what was the impetus for writing this in the first place? I saw a couple things that I, that I felt like needed to be addressed. One is in just in the field of ethics in general, books either were about theory or they were about the issues. Books that were about theory were, for the most part, excruciatingly boring Mm. and had nothing to do with putting shoe leather on real life. And this is an academic saying it's it's boring. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, The stuff that had to do with the issues was just disconnected to any kind of foundational thought about what morality is and how you and how you determine it. And so the the books that are on the issues uh, almost left the reader thinking that well just any any views as good as the next one because it was often they were presented in anthologies where they'd give all these different views but no commentary, no way to help any student or reader think about well how do you know how do I decide which one of these views I ought to be holding because they were all over the map and some mutually exclusive. The other reason I did this is because this is the reason I, I actually went into ethics. I started out in Old Testament uh, and somebody asked me one time, they said, how did you get from studying an Old Testament to doing ethics? I said, well, I just, I read the text. Hmm. I just, I took the text seriously. You can, in my view, you can't, read most of scripture seriously and not think that ethics matters mm-hmm. because it's just, it's just shot through. Uh, and so what I wanted to do, what I saw, the people who were really good theologically typically were not good on the issues. Mm-hmm. And the people who were good on the issues typically either were, they were playing it fast and loose theologically or just didn't care about that at all. And so I wanted to, I wanted to do something that would bring our, our biblical and theological stuff to bear on the issues of the day that you're reading about in the newspaper, but also to do it in a way that took the issues seriously, but also could help people think about how they do morality from a distinctly Christian view of the world. I think the other unique perspective you bring is that you are a practitioner of this too. You've consulted at a number of hospitals you do counseling with individuals. And some of the issues in here, you've really worked through personally. Like I remember when I was in your class, and this is back in, in, in mid-90s as an undergrad, you mentioned just in, in your family, you and your wife dealing with infertility for a season. You were very honest and vulnerable about that. 
And that was the first time it hit me. I'm like, wow, that really could be an issue. So I think you really bring this personal perspective to it that comes through in the book itself that really makes it stronger. I appreciate that. I, t- I often tell my students that before, particularly the bioethics part, you know, be, be careful. There's an occupational hazard mm. because your field might follow you home. <laughs> uh, and it did That's... for us. You know, we, we wrestled with infertility right about the time I got interested in all these reproductive technologies. Oh, wow. uh, about the time the first assisted suicide bill came on the ballot in California mm. in the early 90s, we started walking with with three, would end up with three of our parents through terminal illnesses. Oh my goodness! And then when the first genetic test came out after the Human Genome Project was first done, when the first diagnostic test was the test for breast cancer, the gene that would give you a like eighty five percent likelihood of getting breast cancer. And my wife has a huge history. She had breast cancer herself and had a huge history of it in her family, but she was so ambivalent about taking the test because she, you know, she said, "Well, I." I'm not sure I really want to know all this. Wow. Uh, and so she reflected the ambivalence that a lot of people had in the culture at that time. And the, sort of the idea was, well, maybe, maybe we'll give a genetic revolution, but nobody's going to show up. Mm. I know that turned out not to be true. But initially, there was huge ambivalence about just wanting all of this information. So, the, you know, the stuff that we address in the book has been, that, those have been dinner table conversations and conversations with friends over coffee and so it yeah the uh, just the strictly academic approach would not be cutting it yeah with a lot of the stuff that i've had to deal with i think that shines through in in your book really well and one of the questions that i have as soon as we we talked about doing this podcast is man i want to know how from your perspective because you've been studying the ethical landscape in a particular bioethic bioethics Two or three decades. How has the landscape changed in that time? Well, Sean, the, the issues just keep getting more and more complicated as technology gets better and better. And that what we've discovered is that most of these medical technologies are mixed blessings. Uh, for example, the technologies that enable us to extend life uh, you know, often give us a lot more years of longevity, but usually that's at a very compromised quality of life. And a lot of people who are just hanging on at the end because family members are unwilling to let go of them and unplug some of these things, I'm not sure they look at that as an unqualified blessing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, my, my, I remember my own father, his biggest fear was that he would linger on in a badly compromised state because myself, my brother, and my sister were unwilling to let go mm-hmm. and, to, and to acknowledge that we were going we to disconnect all the life support, turn him back over to the Lord to allow God to do whatever he would for the remaining days of his life. Um, so th- that has changed. We, we've got, and the bio- biotechnology is just an enormous field now uh, where we're talking about, you know, enhancing otherwise normal traits. We're talking about now being able to edit our genomes in in embryonic form, which means that those genetic changes are all now potentially passed on to succeeding generations through normal reproduction. You know, we I don't think we ever envisioned, you know, 30 years ago that we would be able to do designer children. I used to tell my students that the designer children probably will not happen in our lifetime. 
was I wrong about that? Because mm. we, you know, we are on the cusp. In fact, just in the last few months, uh, researchers in China have done the first gene editing in human embryos uh, to give them the traits that parents want. So they, as you know, you could do, you could select for not only for sex but for eye color, hair color. Wow. Things, you know, things that have clear genetic link. Now, some of these things have, you know, are a mixture of a lot of different genes interacting together, and it's much harder to do. Um, but, the, you know, the days of being able to do designer children is here now. Mm. Um, and that, I never envisioned that. So the blessing is that if we can potentially, uh, at the genetic level, prevent certain diseases, potentially that could help. We, pre- we prevent them forever. But exactly. But the curse is now people can become commodities because I want someone who's taller, who's better looking, who's smarter, and it just changes that relationship. Is that the curse that comes? Well, with it? yeah, that that's part of it. I think the the other part is that the uh, we we just we we're sort of, we're redefining kind of what what we mean by longevity, by our mortality. Um, and the, the the curse can is generally the unanticipated side effects of of a lot of these gen, genetic alterations. For example, years ago, they discovered a genetic alteration that would would basically correct the genetic defect that caused sickle cell anemia, which was a, a huge benefit, especially to African Americans. Yeah. Uh, what we discovered, though, is one of the. I, unintended and unanticipated mm. side effects was it genetically wiped out the body's resistance to malaria. And so if it will, you know, pick your poison here. And and we, we there's just so much about the genetic code that we still don't know that it's just we don't we don't know what we're unleashing on succeeding generations. So give me an example of an ethical issue over the time you've been writing and researching on this that you say, you know what? We've made some progress. This is good to see culturally where we're heading. And one, you just say we are headed in the exact wrong direction. Like, give me maybe some polar opposites to compare. Well, I'm I'm encouraged. I'd say it's in some of these areas. They're they're almost all mixed. Mm, okay. I'm not sure there's I'm not sure there are too many that are are I would say are we're making sort un, unqualified progress. Um. I mean, I think with with abortion, for example, I, we're we're no closer to Roe v. Wade being overturned than we were in the you know thirty forty years ago. Even with the Supreme Court, even changes. with the Supreme Court, like it is today, because it, what will happen if Roe v. Wade's overturned? What they will do is the same thing that they did with the court decision on assisted suicide: is they will leave it to the states to determine legislatively what to do, and virtually every state will enact probably within. A few days, if that decision's ever handed down, will enact laws essentially allowing same the same freedom of choice for women to end mm-hmm. their pregnancies. Um, but the encouraging thing is that with the ultrasound technology, particularly 4D ultrasound, and um, you know things that we've picked up from forensics called DNA phenotyping. Uh, the technology we have to appreciate what exactly is developing in the womb is just exponentially greater than than it, than it was thirty even thirty years ago, and DNA phenotyping can actually take DNA from 
the the unborn child in the womb, and you can essentially do a get a sketch of what the person will look like based on their genetic code. Same thing, they're, they're using this in crime scenes now to identify suspects based on DNA that they leave behind. You can get a sketch of what that suspect will look like. There's no reason we can't also do that for the unborn. Mm. Our genetic code doesn't change. Uh, so I think there's, in, there's, encur- there's some encouraging things there too. How we approach the end of life, I think we've gotten much better at what I think is a very biblical position recognizing that death is a conquered enemy and therefore need not always be resisted, that under the right conditions, it's okay to say stop enough to medicine. Um, the, the, the downside of that is that, you know, we've been emboldened uh, around the world, increasingly in states in the U.S., but particularly in Europe, with uh, things like assisted suicide and euthanasia are becoming more the norm. Mm-hmm. So I, I say most of these things are are... They're, they're, again, the progress is mixed. That's fair. That's totally fair. How about in your fourth edition, are there any specific topics that you added that you hadn't addressed earlier or any topics that were there that you just substantially changed? What are they and, and why? Uh, yeah, both. both. Okay. Uh, I decided in the fourth edition, I decided to take on a handful of relatively uncontroversial topics uh, like immigration. Okay. Uh, like gun control. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, race, gender, and diversity. Wow. Um, and then on the environmental ethics. So these were uh, not in the not, last edition. Not in the last edition. Oh, very in fact, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed, actually, that there was, there's, there's been nothing on race huh. and gender issues until now. Hmm. Uh, it's like I kind of woke up and figured out, I actually better do this. Yeah. Or else nobody will think that the book's <laughs> even remotely credible. Um you know, immigration is a newer issue, um, and then the you know gun control and violence. You know, we've we just had so many of these mass shootings, and and what I think what what people don't realize is that most of the worst of these have actually not occurred in the United States. The worst of these mass shootings have occurred in the one in the Middle East, and in terms of the, the most number of casualties have been the ones that have occurred in Europe. Uh, now, the frequency of them, I think, is greater in the United States. Okay. But in terms of just the sheer number, sheer amount of human carnage that's taken place, the worst of those have been in other parts of the world, not in the U.S. Are there any issues you took out that were relevant that we've moved beyond? No, there aren't any. That's interesting. Uh, no, because they're still, they're still relevant. Um I think I, I revamped the whole discussion of sexual ethics because that chapter was written in the third edition before the Obergefell decision came down in 2015. So really, any, in my view, anything on sexual ethics written before 2015 is probably obsolete. Right. Uh, so once, it, once same-sex marriage was legalized, then the whole discussion of sexual ethics changed. And the transgender phenomena was, is, you know, we really weren't wrestling with that all that much in the, you know, 2008 and nine when the third edition came out. So that's all brand new. Uh, but we started, each chapter starts out with a theological framework. That hasn't changed. Uh, it's just the application of it has just gone all over the map. Have you changed your mind on any issues in the decades since you first wrote or maybe even nuanced a position? <clears throat> I have. Um, I have nuanced my views on the death penalty mm. differently. I, I think earlier on, I was much more a committed retentionist. 
to the death. Define that. The, the, it means that uh, the death penalty is is a moral option under under certain circumstances. Mm. Uh, that the, the Bible generally teaches that. But today, I think I've I've recognized that the some of the procedural issues with the death penalty are more substantial than I thought. Mm. Um, the idea of mistakes mistakes being possible and racial discrimination that take, takes place as part of the death penalty administration. Uh, I'm not as pessimistic about our legal system in general as some opponents of the death penalty. I served as, I was the foreman of a, on a jury of murder trial a few years ago. Wow. And actually, it actually restored my faith. Oh, okay. And the seriousness, I, I now take great offense to the notion that all jurors are morons. Okay. <laughs> uh, but... You know, I also I recognize we took we took our task really seriously, and it's it's actually ironically it's the closest I've ever felt to playing God. Wow! Because we knew this this person was um, we he ended up being convicted of of manslaughter, and as a result we probably we probably held the, a decade of his life in our hands. Wow! And there were a couple of people in the jury that wanted to wanted to give him a, a pass based on self defense. Others that wanted a much more aggressive second-degree murder charge. Turns out the only thing the law would allow us to do was the manslaughter charge because we gave him self-defense on the first two shots. Okay. But it was the next six when the oh. victim was hiding in the car. Gotcha. It turned out to be very, very problematic. Gotcha. But I do think that uh, you know, I think the Bible allows for the death penalty. I don't think it mandates it. Mm. Um and I think there probably are some rare cases where something less than the death penalty would not be just. I think of you know Timothy McVeigh who blew up the Oklahoma sure. City Federal, something like sure. that. Um, but I think for the, for the most part, I share a lot of the procedural uh, cautions about people who oppose the death penalty. I think biblically, it's it's harder to oppose it in principle, but on procedural grounds, I think there's there's actually I think some merit. To some of those things. Do you think not only on the issues themselves, but underlying the issues? Everybody, everybody brings some kind of moral approach to these questions. Has this changed over time since when you really started researching this and writing the book to how people even ask ethical questions today? Yeah, the the way we it's a really good question. The way we ta- talk and think about morality. In fact, I I've, I retitled the second chapter mm. "Thinking About Morality." Ah, interesting. Uh, which gives basically uh, uh, the theoretical approach to it. Um, what we discovered, there have been a couple really interesting shifts. One is that morality has shifted from becoming something that I think 30, 40 years ago was widely viewed as, as for the most part, an objective thing, which means that it, it, your view of it, or, or whether it was true or not, didn't change based on how you felt about it. Morality today has become much more of a subjective opinion. Uh, and some of that is, is our, our worldview, how we view our understanding of knowledge, that we can't really know things unless we can empirically verify them, uh, which puts morality into the realm of religion and speculation and other things that we, you know, we can't know about. But yet I suspect if you said that take the term racial discrimination is morally wrong. Yep. And you said, well, the KKK just has a different perspective on it. <laughs> I think we would say, no, the KKK is just flat wrong mm-hmm. about that. And if you would have said to Martin Luther King, 
Well, if you have a problem with slavery, then don't own slaves. Right. Sort of like we would say, so if you have a problem with abortion, don't have one. I think he would have said, well, you've just completely missed it. Hmm. Uh, and so the, the idea that morality has retreated into the realm of subjective opinion uh, is a really dangerous idea. I think people are, are today, although I think they're waking up to the notion that that that's a completely unlivable situation. Nobody mm. actually lives that way. Mm. And what you find is that as soon as someone becomes a victim of injustice, they become a very rigid absolutist. And that subjective that relativism and subjective goes straight out the window. Uh, I was speaking to a group of high school students on this, and they were, they were this one really sharp young woman uh, was sitting right at the front, and she kept saying, well, I think we ought to be able to make up our own moral rules for ourselves. Who are you to tell me what those rules are? And so I, I saw, as I was just kind of roaming the room speaking, I saw she had a brand new iPhone on her desk. <laughs> and so without, without, looking, without looking at her, without mentioning it, I just sort of picked it up and put it in my pocket. Nice. And just went on and proceeded with the rest of the discussion. And she was too embarrassed to just <laughs> say anything. She's, I think she was just too shocked that I had done something like that. Right. And so I just I started packing up my stuff at the end and got ready to leave. And she said, aren't you going to give me my phone back? I said, well, no, I'm not. And she said, well, but, but that's my phone. And, I, you know, so I, and she was, I mean, it was just so easy. Yeah. But I said, well, you, I thought you said we were, could make up our own moral rules for ourselves. And my moral rules say that people who are older, wiser, and more experienced are entitled to the stuff of, the, of those who are younger and less experienced. So, too bad. And she got kind of, I mean, I think she knew I was playing with yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. But you could see she got a little steamed about it. And, mm. and I, she might have just been flummoxed that she didn't know what to say. Mm. But I said, of course, I'm giving you your phone back. But notice, you you are not a relativist at all. Mm. You know, you are a very rigid absolutist. And I think today we see we see on lots of issues that, you know, tend toward the more politically correct side. Um, morality is not being viewed as a, as a subjective thing. It's, viewed, it's being viewed more today objectively on certain things, objectively and rigidly absolutist. You know, try deviating from the, the secular orthodoxy on some of these things and see what happens. Even in Judges when it says, and people did that which was right in their own eyes, they were still made in the image of God like people are today and have a moral conscience. That can never disappear. But you're right, it seems that the amount of subjects and what we consider objective seems to shift. Do you, you, would you say we're, we're, it, we have shifted to kind of a shame-based culture? And I ask because some ways it seems, especially with social media, we're so quick to just shame somebody. It's almost like the worst thing you can do is anything that's shameful to your group. And in, in a way that we historically as individualistic Westerns have not been. Yeah, I'd say on, on some things, yes, that's true. And I'd say there are probably on, on some things that shame is deserved. Mm -hmm. uh, now, probably not in the, uh, I don't know, the kind of the, the, the mob, sort of the mob violence way in yes. which it's done. And virtual signal, um, virtue signaling. Yeah. And so we, I mean, we can, it's not, it's not hard to destroy people's reputations like that, but you know, does does Harvey Weinstein deserve shame? Mm. I I think yes, and others who mist you know 
had a lot a lot of those have been have come out just not not, not that long ago. Other areas that used to be areas that brought shame mm. are celebrated today. So things like having children out of wedlock mm-hmm. used to be a source of great shame. And today we give baby showers, you know, for high school girls who are having kids. Um, so I'd say it depend, depends on the issue. Some, some things we've gotten much more rigidly absolute about. Others, you know, we've, you know, they used to be things that we ought to probably should have some, you know, so, some sort of disapproval of shame. I think a little strong because that that's a, that's a judgment about the, the worth sure, of a person sure. too. But some sort of disapproval, public disapproval of, I think, is warranted on things that we know are you know are causing harm, like they are. So you have a new chapter on the environment. Uh, what's your thoughts on climate change? Um, well, I, I admit. I've been influenced pretty significantly by my by my good friend theologian Brent Waters hmm. on this. I think climate change is real. Uh, I think there's you know, and there's there's definitely a human element to it. Um, but the the issue is, you know, kind of what to do with that, and what what should the launch ramp look like to get to a place where we're off of fossil fuels and all. All onto renewable energy. I think, I, in my view, that, that day is coming. Mm. You know, how how soon or how far off that is, I think, is a matter of opinion. Uh, and it is true that we t- technology has actually increased the longevity of the fossil fuels that we have in the Earth's ground at the at the moment. That's just kicking the can down the road, in my view. Um, but. The, the question of the launch ramp is a really important one because the, the fundamental issue in addressing climate change is how is that going to affect the poorest of the poor mm. around the world? And we know that there are two things that are essential for the poor to lift themselves out of poverty. You know, one, assuming you have a system that's conducive to that, one is education. The other is cheap, plentiful energy. System, you know, cultures will not lift themselves out of poverty today without both of those things. And so, if the launch ramp to renewable energy is too short, we've basically consigned about probably a billion or two people around the world to perpetual poverty that they will never get out of. Wow. And I think that's too high a cost. Mm-hmm. And I, total, I totally understand why some governments say, you know, you take your climate change stuff and stick it in your ear hmm. because we have a higher priority of getting our people off of $2 a day poverty. Hmm. And I think biblically, I think that's right because most of our public policy, in my view, ought to be have at least a criteria in there about how does it affect those who are the least advantaged among us. And I think too short a launch ramp will cripple the ability of the poorest of the world's poor to escape that grinding sort of intractable poverty. You're really highlighting one of the lessons I remember learning when I read a book by Jay Richards. Uh, He was talking about capitalism, but he said, so much damage has been done by well-meaning good intentions that don't think through the implications of the consequences. 
Sounds like that's what you're saying. We see this in a lot of ethical issues, don't we? Well, especially as it, as it relates to economics, mm. because so many of our good intentions uh, are, are accompanied by ign- an ignorance of economics. Mm. Even, even things that are as simple as, as the, the maxim that incentives matter uh, or the laws of supply and demand. For, for example, uh, laws that are designed uh, to raise minimum wage to you know, $15, $20 an hour. I think will end up hurting the very people that they are designed to help because employers are simply going to hire less people. In fact, I've had, I've had to tell some of my students who, you know, between their freshman and sophomore year, I've, I've said, look, I love you, but you're not worth 15 or $20 an hour to most employers. <laughs> right, and I went, I right. wouldn't, I wouldn't, and I was as a high school student, I wasn't either. Uh, we shouldn't expect that. Um, and I think the reality is, like most economic, like most socioeconomic sectors, people go in and out of those sectors mm. pretty regularly throughout their lives. I mean, statistically, roughly half the half the population will be will have lived under the poverty line at some point in their lives. You know, most of us as, as graduate students, we knew that feeling, um, and there, are, you know, and people move out of in and out of these you know, wealth categories pretty regularly, which means that at least at a place structured like it is here, we socioeconomic mobility is actually an option, which compared to lots of other parts of the world simply is not because they don't have the structures in place. And so well-meaning foreign aid, that's the reason that it, it gets sucked into a vacuum because the system is not set up to, to, um, to incentivize people to take risks and to start businesses and to to better themselves. Um, you know, Scott, we could take each one of these topics. Maybe we will sometime in the future and just I get to kind of put you on the hot seat and talk about gun control, creation care, sexual ethics, war, ethical issues at the end of life, immigration. You go into all these. So maybe at some point we'll do that. And I'll enjoy this. Actually edit this part right, what I just said. I've been enjoying this partly as your former student, and now you're my boss, to get to have you on the hot seat. I appreciate but, that. My goodness, you know <laughs> your stuff. This was great, both in content, biblically, ethically, but really practically. So I commend your book to people, and just uh, so they know I'm not just recommending this because you're my <laughs> co-host and colleague, I actually still teach appreciate a high school that. class part-time and we look at worldview we look at bible these are juniors and seniors and next year there's a really good chance we're going to use this for a semester because i don't think there's another book that approaches it the way you do so i definitely want to commend moral choices to our audience uh thanks for joining me as usual but being on the hot seat (laughs) happy to assume that so uh glad 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 we can uh, get the word out about the book and glad it's useful it's always kind of a mixed thing when people say, "Well, your your stuff on bioethics was useful," mm. I say, "Well, I'm I'm glad of that, but I'm sorry you're in that condition that it's oh, actually yes. useful for you." Yes. So I'm I'm grateful. On balance, I'm grateful that it's been useful to folks over the years. Well, you bring that approach of both compassion yet biblical truth that people need, and I would say, even if somebody's not in that situation, the time is not to wait, but to think ahead of time so you're prepared. Yeah. That's why this study is so important. Well. Great job. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. 
to learn more about us and today's guest, my co-host, Scott Ray. And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about it.